Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AE Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Brent Bishore, the founder and CEO of a lower middle market private equity firm called Permanent Equity. Permanent Equity acquires family-owned companies and has 11 in their portfolio today. They've also raised two 27-year funds, a $50 million fund in 2017 and a $248 million fund in 2019. Permanent Equity is probably the most experienced, systematized, and well-known acquirer in the small business world, and I'm excited to finally have Brent on the podcast. During this episode, Brent and I talk about their marketing strategy, what competitive advantages they've built and are building for tomorrow, how businesses can build a margin of safety in their operations, and lessons learned from buying and improving family-owned businesses. I recently moved near Brent's headquarters in Columbia, Missouri to Omaha, Nebraska, and we also spend a few moments discussing life in the Midwest. Finally, I will be attending Brent and Patrick O'Shaughnessy's conference Capital Camp in Columbia at the end of August, and I hope to see many of you there. If you're going, please reach out and let's connect beforehand. And now, enjoy the episode. 
Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a long time in the making, but I'm excited to finally have you and also to be within a four-hour drive of you now that my wife and I are in Omaha, Nebraska. Most people are going to be familiar with you, and so we'll skip most background and I'll add some in the intro. But I'd be curious, what surprises folks the most when they visit the Midwest for the first time? Boy, what surprises people? I think that it's like legitimate area to live in. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have people come from the coast to Columbia quite often to visit us and everyone's reactions like, this is great. I understand now why you'd want to live here. I mean, it's not like this barren wasteland that you think between LA and New York. So, No, it's certainly not. I was talking about earlier, the thunderstorms surprised us the most. In Omaha, there was a storm recently where the winds got above 70 miles an hour, which triggers the tornado sirens, even if there is no tornado. And so that triggered in the middle of the night. And so we, my wife and I were like, this is the first time this has ever happened. I'm not really sure what to do here, but that was a bit of a frightening moment. I heard that happened on Capitol Camp last year or the, two years ago. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, two tornadoes during Capitol Camp. So one that got pretty close. It was, uh, you know, we're just trying to give people uh, authentic Midwest experience. So we released the tornadoes and had all the Europeans go outside and try to take photos and had to shush them back inside. So, yes, absolutely. I'd love to hear a little bit about your strategy just as a, your background is in marketing, of course. I'd love to hear how that has influenced your work at Permanent Equity, where a lot of your work is published. You publish papers, you're on podcasts a lot like this one. You have written a book at this point. Can you talk about kind of the goal of all that content and then how you organize each piece of it, the book, conference, writing, Twitter, all these other pieces? Yeah, I mean, I'd say haphazard would be the short way of, of saying it. I mean, I think that maybe from the outside looking at it, it looks organized. I would say when we have something to say, we try to say it. Our goal in every piece of content is to educate and then repel the wrong people and attract the right people, whether that's potential partners, uh, employees, obviously sellers, leadership teams, intermediaries, lawyers, accountants, whoever it might be. We always try to be thoughtful around what are we trying to help them understand about us and about our perspective that then would lead them either to contact us or say, heck no, I would never contact them, which by the way, both are equally good in our eyes. Is there any piece or type of content that you put out that has been the most productive in just getting folks to reach out to you? Honestly, we have no idea why people reach out to us. We try to ask them and it is usually a pretty convoluted answer. They say, oh, I think I read something a couple of years ago that you guys wrote or said or and then I just kind of followed you ever since. And when the time was right, they reached out. So I would say the, probably the piece of content that we get told about the most is our no a-hole policy that we put on the front page, which is ironic because there's plenty of people who are a-holes who identify with that article and still reach out. But that's a separate, uh, <laughs> that's a separate issue. No one thinks they're an a-hole, as we've learned. And as the article actually says, I mean, everyone's either an a-hole or a-hole in recovery. So we just try to be more in recovery than not. I love it. Do you worry about giving a advantage to any competitors of yours for any company by writing about how you work through a deal process or talk with owners, how you communicate with your teams? Do you worry about giving anyone an advantage over you? No, I mean, look, the world is a big place. There's a lot of businesses that need to be transitioned. Our philosophy has always been that it's far, far better to just help people and expect nothing in return. And so Genuinely, we try to put things out there that we think would be helpful, would be great if they had been around when we were first getting going. Are there competitors? Of course. Have we tried to encourage and help people get into the space? Absolutely. Will we continue to do that? Gosh, I hope so. Does it maybe create more competitive dynamics? I guess. But I think in the long run, I mean, look, 
<laughs> I, I think we're going to have what God wants us to have. And I'm not too concerned that we're going to launch a thousand competitors and that somehow we're going to get put by the wayside. I mean, the irony of what we do, and I think you know this, Alex, is that it's actually pretty simple and straightforward. It doesn't take very long to learn sort of how to go about doing what we do. There's just a lot of judgment, and that's what takes years and years, if not decades. And the judgment is at every stage of the game. I mean, unlike public equities where you can poke a buy button or a sell button and think great thoughts during the day, most of our interactions are with people, and people are messy and complicated and trying to design a system that allows for a sort of the systematic moving along of these processes all the time is incredibly difficult. I mean, usually private equity firms have a partner model where, you know, how do you expand? You just hire more partners. We really try to take an assembly line approach, which is very different. And it's very intuitive to me and to us. The partnership model seems really hard to find people who could do all these things excellently. It seems a lot easier to be able to find somebody who could operate their specific area of that deal process well. So anyway, that's kind of the way we think about it. Yeah, it seems a very different model from most buyers. Most of the folks I talk with are individuals buying companies. And so the owner or broker, whoever, has one point of contact with the buyer that they talk with throughout the entire process. Is it challenging sometimes handing off an owner to different team members at Permanent Equity as the deal process goes along? Or has it been not that difficult and it's been a fairly straightforward process? I think if you talk about it as a team and that, I mean, with the value in this, it's not just one person. I mean, we have a whole group of people that surround the sellers and leadership teams. And we think that provides a much better outcome, a much more varied and diverse perspective. And so when we bring people into the process at various times, we say, hey, this person's amazing at fill in the blank. And that's why they're here. And turns out, I think that the sellers realize that they are really good at that part and that we defer to each other and that we think highly of one another. And I think that's a pretty attractive thing to them to gain a group of, I don't know, where we at 16, 17 people now that care deeply about what their success. And we're going to try to bring our expertise and our talents to bear on their company. You mentioned judgment earlier and how it just takes years of reps to have a good judgment on how a deal is going or how a company looks. How do you institutionalize that knowledge and get it out of your head, so to speak, and into some process or documented guide for others to follow and take advantage of that judgment that you've honed over the years? First of all, I would say that in terms of my judgment, I'm close to functionally irrelevant these days at permanent equity. So, I mean, I would say that, I mean, it's not my judgment anymore that is really dominant. I have judgment maybe around the deal-making, kind of deal design aspect. And then, you know, we call deal rescue, which, you know, every deal has to be rescued at least three times in our experience to close. So those are the two things that I probably specialize most in these days. Other than that, it's really, the team is incredible. I mean, I admire our team greatly and enjoy being around them. I feel so blessed to be able to work alongside them every day. And I know a lot of people say stuff like that and kind of don't mean it. And they're trying to be falsely humble. Like, I'm truly serious. Like, it's incredible. It's awesome, the team that's come together here. Yeah, in terms of how do we institutionalize judgment? I mean, I think that's the thing about judgment is you can institutionalize it. I mean, you can create checklists and processes to make sure that the person's judgment doesn't run astray or you don't fall down some sort of hole you didn't know was there. But in terms of judgment, I mean, the only way to get it is experience. And thankfully, we have a rule around here that we don't hire people who haven't been operators because we think that operating skill set is far more important than an investing skill set especially for what we do. And so everyone's been an operator. Everyone's gotten their teeth kicked in and hit their face on the pavement a number of times. And 
We certainly have an atmosphere of collaboration around the office where when somebody's dealing with something difficult, they verbalize it and communicate around and say, you know, has anybody seen anything like this before? And, you know, more times than not, somebody says, yeah, look, we've seen that movie before and here's how we think that plays out, but maybe not this time. So yeah, I would say just, it's more of a hiring thoughtful, intelligent, kind people that then collaborate with one another is how we're all going to get better over time. You mentioned how a-hole sometimes get through your no a-hole article and still make it through your filter. How do you start filtering from, okay, now we have this group of operators who are excited to work at permanent equity in some way. How do you begin to filter them by kind-hearted people, work well with other people? What kinds of questions or things do you tend to look for in folks when you're thinking about hiring them? Yeah, I mean, we really just try to get to know people. I mean, you ask them a lot of questions about their family, about their background, about how they approach different things at work, what their colleagues would say about them. I mean, Graham Duncan wrote this incredible white paper called uh, What's Going On Here With This Human. I don't know if you read it or not, but he does a great job of talking through, you know, how do you get to really know somebody and how do you think through the mindset of, okay, maybe they're, you're not, they're not interviewing for a specific job, but they're interviewing sort of your job is to see where they could fit. We very much take that mindset around here. In terms of just trying to screen for, I mean, we all have pride issues. We all have anger issues and frustrations and anxieties and fears. And so I think that the question is not, are we trying to screen for people who are somehow inhuman? The answer is, of course, no. We're trying to understand what is the person's predictability and how do we expect them to act under sort of a fairly wide band of outcomes and making sure that those ways that they would react and the way they would act under those band of outcomes matches with how we would expect others to be treated here at Permanent Equity. And so it's really just a matter of just getting to know them and seeing how their behavior matches up with their words. And, you know, we take a pretty long time to get to know people. Is there any question that you'd love to ask folks or a scenario you'd like to paint the picture of to see how they might react? We'd like to ask a lot about power dynamics. We'd like to ask about what are examples when somebody who was in a position of power above you acted in a way that you didn't appreciate. How did you react to that? How about somebody who was kind of a peer to you? How about somebody who was sort of underneath your authority in the organization? Oftentimes, you can't disguise it enough where people don't really know where you're going with it. So you kind of got to ask and poke around a couple different ways. Ultimately, what we're trying to figure out is there are certain people who punch up, but most people punch down. And we don't like people who punch down. If you're going to do anything, punch up. Meaning, I'd rather somebody get aggressive with somebody who's their boss, who feels like they're in position over them, and aggressive in a way that is respectful, though. Behind the closed doors, they say, hey, that was not good. I mean, being people will call it transparency, but we would appreciate much more people who, when you're leading others, you do so in a kind, encouraging way, not in a way that sort of tries to control them or manipulate them into uh, behavior that you think is best. Do you have any examples or stories at Permanent Equity over the last year where someone has, maybe not aggressively, but someone pushed back upwards within your team on some key issue that they were passionate about or really strongly believed in? Yeah, that's about every day around here. I mean, literally, we have a culture that I'm not sure how normal it is, but where I think everyone on the team feels comfortable walking to anybody else's office and saying, hey, this is something that has risen to a level that we need to talk about it. I'm uncomfortable with this, or I don't feel like that we're doing this the appropriate way, or there's room for improvement here. I mean, literally, it's all the time. It's anything we write, it's interactions with sellers, it's interactions with portfolio companies, it's how we go about trying to institute change. I mean, it's everything. And we try to set things up to give a forum to that on a pretty regular basis. So once a week, the executive team's getting together and really talking through what are challenges we're all facing and how can we help one another in those challenges and what are things we need to to adjust and change. And then 
once a quarter, we're all getting together for at least one day, if not two or three days, and really hashing things out. I'd be curious, as you have now raised two funds and you've had previous experience owning and running companies as well, when you started with Fund One, what competitive advantages did you expect to have? And then today, have those panned out? And then perhaps what other competitive advantages emerged that you maybe didn't expect? I think our competitive advantage has always been, and this is going to sound like very basic, but it's true, is just we do what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it. We just try to practice extreme reliability. And it's an accruing advantage because the more that you know, people know that you'll do what you say you're going to do, you're going to treat them fairly, react quickly, be honest about things, the more people want to work with you. So I think that's where we've developed at least a subsegment of intermediaries and lawyers and accountants and you know people out there who help the sellers and leadership teams transition that know us and I think respect us. And we try to treat them well, serve them well. And that's certainly been an accruing advantage over time. I would say that that is a brand. I mean, if you think about what is a brand, it's basically what can people expect? And I hope that the brand we put out there, it's certainly not perfect, just like we aren't. And I would say that that fits well. But I would say that for the most part, I think people expect us to do the right thing. And I think we far more times than don't do the right thing. So what goes into being a reliable person in your eyes? Well, everyone's reliable in the moment to what they prioritize most. So, I mean, this is the idea that no one acts irrationally ever in the moment. If you think somebody's acting irrationally, it just means you don't understand their time preferences or their biases or I would say general preferences. In terms of being reliable, it's having a heart to serve, having a heart to play the long game, knowing that at the end of the day, all we have is our word and that really matters. And so when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And you don't think twice about fulfilling that. And if you, for some reason, something comes up, and you can't do what you say you're going to do. You immediately say to the person, hey, here's the situation. Here's why we can't do it. And here's why. And just let it play out. What kind of tactics go into that? So is it good writing, just being an open communicator, setting agendas beforehand? What sorts of best practices have you developed around working with third parties and being a reliable source of information or being predictable as an organization? Well, I mean, communication is just, you're communicating what you are and who you are. So, I mean, I would say certainly, hopefully in our writings, I mean, we've been consistent. We're writing a lot less these days just because we're busier than we've ever been. And somebody's got to give. I mean, we're human, (laughs) right? But I would say what goes into it is just trying to be consistent in every interaction they have. So whether that's on the phone or whether that's through a piece of writing or whether that's somebody who hears something that somebody said to them, I mean, that we try to be consistent in all the touch points. I mean, certainly we don't do it perfectly by any means, but just try to be us. I mean, I think that's maybe it's interesting because I think people maybe sometimes have this idea that we've like crafted an image or whatever for permanent equity. It hasn't been intentional. I mean, I, I joke that it was haphazard. We're just trying to be us. And I think that we're, we've gotten comfortable in our own skin that we are who we are. We're not right for everyone. In fact, we're not right for most people. But you know, for a certain group of people that care deeply who buys their business and don't want to see it sold in a short period of time and want it to be built over a long period of time, I mean, I think that we're, we're a pretty good option. And that's who we want to be. And for those businesses that you've acquired over the years, this is switching gears more to operations and running companies. What improvements do you most consistently make at new portfolio companies as you acquire them or after you do? There's a, we call it the everything tastes like chicken layer to business where whether you're in the glass and glazing business or pool construction or manufacturing or military recruitment or matchmaking, I mean, all the different things that we're involved in these days, there's a layer to it where if you don't have good feedback loops of information, you can't make good decisions. 
there's not much more to it. So what do we do? We try to get in there and improve the quality of information, uh, the timeliness of information delivery, while at the same time trying to be mindful that where are you trying to get to? Ultimately, if you can get pretty quickly to X and it takes another 10X to get to Y, is that you know 10X effort worth it? And oftentimes the answer is no. So we're trying to get up to where we feel like the optimal speed quality ratio is ideal for that organization and for what needs to be done. And some organizations need a lot more information feedback loops than others. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. It really depends on the situation. So I would say that, I mean, I would say is we're looking at sales systems, we're looking at the marketing and advertising, we're looking at the technology stack, and then we're just looking at general, you know, operational efficiency is probably not the right word. I mean, we're looking at culture. We're looking at how do we treat our people? How do we create incentives? All those things. And by the way, we've never come into a company that's done all those things well, and it takes a forever time. I mean, we've owned companies now for over a decade, and I would say that they're still not all the way there, and they're still continually getting better. And so hopefully, you know, all you can do is just try to be conservative financially, try to build a lot of trust within the organization, and then just keep getting better and let the chips fall where they may. Is there a company that you might be able to use as an example and talk about some of the feedback loops within this company that you've improved since owning it? A good example of that is our pool business. We started working that business, gosh, I'm pushing six years now. Like any growing business, I mean, they'd grown a ton. Systems were breaking. And so we worked with them a lot to figure out what are the feedback loops. And so what's the dashboards? What are the key performance indicators that we need to watch to see? And how are we tracking each one of those? And so I'd say it's certainly still not perfect and no company is, but made huge strides. And that company's grown, gosh, three times the size in six years. And so I think the only way you can do that is if you continually work on your systems and get people the information they need and hopefully continue to grow from there. What feedback loop within the pool business needed the most help? I think that, you know, margin. So if you think about building an individual pool, it's a construction project. And we're going to do, you know, over 2000 construction projects this year. So if you think about each one of those construction projects, gosh, has depends on how you define categories, but, you know, call it 80 to 100 inputs. Each one of those inputs has a separate cost structure to it and margin into it. And then you add up all of those and that gives you an individual job you know, margin. And so I would say is over time, you know, we've really tried to figure out how do we watch the subcomponent margins and how do we make sure that we're pricing things appropriately to make sure that we uh, don't get ourselves in trouble. I mean, I think certainly recently costs have exploded in the construction world. I mean, I'm sure you're aware, but not just lumber, it's everything. All inputs to construction have gone up dramatically. And so just trying to make sure that we're staying on top of that. And it's hard. It's really difficult. If you think about running 2000 construction projects a year, it feels somewhat like a miracle. So you've obviously had tons of experience running companies and improving them. What are some of the most interesting ways you've seen companies build a margin of safety into their operations? I mean, it's all going to come down to people. I mean, the margin of safety is down to the trust and reliability of the people that are involved in it. You can have the best processes in the world. You can you can have a great product if your relationships are terrible. If there's not much trust amongst your team, it's eventually going to come crumbling down. And so, again, everyone wants to find the secret. The secret is people. And the secret is how do you treat people really, really well and be kind and generous to them. And everyone, I mean, everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants to be fairly treated and fairly compensated and given autonomy and be seen. And so how do you do those things? I mean, people can tell if you actually care about them or if you're trying to fake it. And so I would say is, The secret, again, is there is no secret. Just treat people well and truly care about them and try to 
do good by them. They'll try to do well by you. So, I loved your tweet, the 10 big life lessons that you've integrated into your life over the course of your time. And the one that sticks out to me a little bit is the nonlinear thinking, where we think linearly, but oftentimes unexpected things happen to the upside compoundedly and downside. I'd be curious what moves or changes within a company have you made that surprised you the most to the upside? The challenge with the question, though, is it implies that there's like this one thing that you tweak and then everything just goes through the roof. And there's not. That's what most people don't realize. It's like when you see a company exploding upwards, it's a combination of a ton of different things that happened years before. And the table was set and then the sort of the compounding took over. And so in terms of how we've seen that, I mean, we've certainly seen companies that we've got involved in that have done extraordinarily well, but it feels unremarkable. That's the irony of it. It doesn't feel like there's something dramatic that happened that, you know, it was like this aha moment that the light bulb went off and everyone was like, well, if we just did fill in the blank, if we just discovered the secret recipe or the secret sauce, it's like, there is no secret sauce. Like it's just, it's just getting the right people in the right places and the right systems and doing the work. And then over time, all of a sudden, you know, you see the fruits of that come about. And so we're doing far better than we deserve. Let's put it that way. Right. And so the success just though comes from just the daily grind and trying to be faithful on a daily basis to what you should be doing and just keep doing more of it. It's a really boring podcast answer though. Like it's not a clever thing. One of the things I love about your podcast, and I think that one of the things I like about the space to take a slight digression is, is that it's not magic and it's not like you feel like you're coming into some secret. I mean, there really is no secret. It's just, you know, how do you serve your customers well? How do you be good partners to your suppliers? And how do you create a culture of everyone trying to win together and do the right thing? And then at the end of the day, those things will shake out over long periods of time, usually in the right direction. When those things are on shaky foundations is when you get detonations. And I mean, thankfully, we've never had a detonation in our portfolio. I mean, it's felt like at times that it could have happened, but we try to be very disaster resistant in how we do things. When you're acquiring companies at the size range you're currently working at, do you look for companies that have if there's, there's more than just five, but if there's like five basics of running a business well, do you look for companies that have all five or are you okay if companies have gotten like three out of five or four out of five, but if a company has one out of five, you're not really interested? Like, Where do you draw that line typically? So the way we think about the ideal acquisition target for us is the people do the thing that they do really well. You know, if it's glass and glazing, they're incredible at building buildings Everything else we're pretty flexible on. The more of the components, and we talked about that everything tastes like chicken layer of business earlier, but the more of those components that are in order and the smaller the company, the more you have to question the business model. Because if you're just excellent at the everything tastes like chicken layer of business and the company's not growing and is still pretty small after a long period of time, then you really got to look to the business model. And so for us, if this company has been in existence for 20, 30 years, and it's still relatively small, then one of two things has happened. Either incredible at business and they have a terrible business model, in which case we certainly don't want to buy the business. Or the business model is fantastic and they're probably not great at all those other, you know, the business of business. And so for us, we're trying to evaluate sort of, it's almost like a Goldilocks. We don't want them to be excellent at the business of business because that means that probably their business model is not ideal. At the same time, we don't want them to have no infrastructure in place to where it'll take a really long time and usually a regression in the numbers to rebuild the company into a state that you can actually grow. So it's a little bit of Goldilocks. 
What common problems do you see folks with good business models that work? What things do they tend to struggle at in executing that business model? Yeah, I mean, that is the business of business. There's no marketing effort. There's no sales effort. Their sales incentives are all off. They're still doing everything through a series of spreadsheets. They have no good HR policies. They can't recruit talent. They don't want to incentivize people the right way. They, I mean, you know, it's all the things that would limit how a company would sort of organically grow if the demand was there. And so we try to come in and just look for bottlenecks. I mean, the question we keep asking ourselves is, okay, what's limiting us from growth? And, you know, everyone will always say, oh, we just had more customers. Okay, well, how do you get more customers? Well, we got to go find them. Okay, well, who's going out and finding them? Well, no one. Okay, should we hire somebody to go out and find them? Or could you go out and find them? I mean, I could, I don't want to. Okay, well, I mean, maybe that's the bottleneck. Or, hey, we have incredible demand. We have people coming and knocking on our door all the time. We can't find labor, as an example. I mean, labor is a huge issue in a lot of blue collar areas right now. Well, how do you get more labor? Well, you got to find people and train them. Well, how are we finding people? Well, we don't really try to find people. Okay, well, maybe we could try to find people. You know, again, this is there's no magic to it. It's just asking questions to try to get to what do we think the bottleneck is and then what are the ways in which we can sort of uncork it. Yeah, recruiting has been a huge focus for a lot of companies. And then especially with permanent equity using your new Orbit program, I'd love to hear about how you've designed that program for recruiting to not only just your portfolio companies, but at permanent equity as well. How have you designed the Orbit program to continually find great people to work with you? Well, first of all, Kelly Morgan, who runs that, is she's just phenomenal. She does nothing every day other than try to connect with people who are interested in working either directly at Permanent Equity or in one of the portfolio companies. And she's done a great job. The Orbit is basically an opt-in system where you tell us what you want to do and where you want to do it and what your ideal job would be, what you feel like you're qualified to do now. And then when something fits that looks like what you said to us, then we contact you and say, hey, Do you want to come evaluate this opportunity with us? And so we hire almost exclusively through that program now. I would say the last, yeah, probably the last 20 hires have all been through that program. So at what level in a portfolio company of yours do you hire through the Orbit program versus directly through the company? So the way we think about what we do at the permanent equity level versus what we do at the portfolio companies levels, if you want to think about it, it's like a two by two matrix and the less frequent. So frequency being the sort of X axis. The less frequent, the more likely we're going to do it at the permanent equity level. And then the more important, the more likely we're going to do it at the permanent equity level. So if it's highly infrequent and highly important, that's going to be situated then at the permanent equity level. And so executive recruitment would be a good example of that. I mean, if you're doing executive recruitment well, you shouldn't be doing it often. If you're doing it often, that means you're probably not doing it well. So we want to do that probably at the permanent equity level. In terms of hiring, you know, whether like a line worker or a sort of day labor or something like that in one of the companies, that would certainly be done through the company and not at the permanent equity level. So when it comes to things like a ERP integration, hopefully you're not doing an ERP integration very often. Really, really important. It could be hugely valuable if you do it or hugely disastrous. So the more important, the less frequent, the more it's located here. How do you handle context switching when you're hiring different executives for different companies where there's different cultures in place and perhaps entirely different HR practices or systems. How do you switch between those when you're making these hires? Like you were saying, perhaps it's infrequent enough that it's not a huge concern, but I'd be curious if it's frequent enough that you're switching fairly frequently, how do you handle that switching? I mean, that'd be a great question for Kelly. I mean, I'm not the one doing it. Like I said, I'm functionally irrelevant these days. So, I mean, I think what she would say would be that we're not often hiring 
three, four, five executives at any given time. You know, she's usually going through a week or two period of sprinting on one position and she's able to get into the company and get to know the leadership and she's working very closely. It's not like we're hiring them in a vacuum here at Permanent Equity and then sort of gifting them to the portfolio companies. I mean, we're trying to really come alongside the company and she's an extension of that company in many ways. And so it should feel very organic and natural that they're involved in the process and how they are. And so I doubt the context switching is a hugely important issue. Although, you know, I'm sure she has days where she's interviewing for three or four different types of positions at any given time. And she's got to pop between uh, different types of companies and different geographies and different styles. And I'm sure it's not an easy job, but that's why she's awesome. Yeah, it sure sounds like it's a pretty good job and she's doing a great one. It almost sounds like you've developed an executive search firm underneath permanent equity. I'd be curious, are there, what have returns to the project been since you started Orbit compared to how you recruited prior to Orbit? Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge godsend. Orbit's been, I mean, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, there's money, there's opportunities and there's talent. And if you don't keep them all in balance, then you're not going to have a firm. And so thankfully with the fundraise, the most recent fundraise, we, as Forrest Gump said, don't have to worry about money no more. And that's good. It's one less thing to worry about. And opportunities have been plentiful. That's been great to be able to see so many different things. And so really now it's just a focus on talent. And that's going to be the biggest bottleneck. And just talent can kind of, it can get this sort of cookie cutter mentality. I mean, we're trying to find people who care deeply about what they do and are fantastic. And so the bar is really, really high. And yeah, Orb's been just a godsend in terms of getting to know people over long periods of time. You know, anytime we travel to a city, we typically try to host an Orbit event get together, get coffee with people, get to know them, just develop relationships. So much of the world comes down to relationships. And the more I think about it, the more that I think that's true. And I continually underestimate how much it all comes down to relationships. Yeah, the Orbit program definitely seems like a compounding advantage for permanent equity over time. Also be curious, what advantage are you working hard at today to eventually attain five years from now? One of the things that we've talked a lot about is doing outbound well. So we've been pretty lazy, to be honest. I mean, we've done mostly inbound marketing. And, you know, when you start to feel like the zoo animal, right, the lion in the cage where the stakes just kind of get fed to it, you start to not want to hunt very much. And early on, when we were just getting going, we did exclusively outbound because no one knew who we were and we had no brand, no inbound. And we just didn't have much success. And so, you know, as inbound started to ramp up, we found success in that. We just really didn't make an effort towards outbound. And that's been a big change that we're really trying to work on is what does it look like to have the best data, the best business intelligence on the lower middle market and know who they are and know what they want and know when they want it and be able to get in front of them at the right time and not be annoying and be thoughtful and start meaningful conversations. And so we're very early on in that process, but uh, we feel pretty good about the steps we've taken and we're going to try to keep going down that path. So you've also created a deal team, Capital Camp, Orbit. What products or services, communities do you want to see created over the next five years? One of the things that's shocking to me, I, mean, I don't come from the investing world, right? I've never taken a finance class in my life. I've never worked at another firm. I joke that I'm the force gump of private equity for a reason, because I think it's pretty true. One of the things is I get more and more into this world. It seems to be just massive inefficiencies everywhere I look between how investors communicate, how LPs and GPs communicate with one another, and what does it look like to have community amongst people who are trying to do really difficult things and trying to do them at scale 
And the support structure, it's pretty lonely out there. <laughs> Let's put it that way, right? I mean, especially in private equity, we're not exactly known for our warm and fuzzy community. It's pretty cutthroat. And so I think that one of the things that we have tried to do is through Capital Camp, now through Deal Team, is create community, real community, where you can form meaningful relationships and trust. And that's mutually beneficial for everyone. And so I think that there's a lot of value to be gained for everyone through collaboration and not through sort of intense zero-sum competition. So that's my hope over the coming years is that we're able to continue to foster those types of communities. And I think personally for me, my career feels very haphazard, right? It feels, it feels very random. And, you know, if I hadn't met Patrick through Twitter, I think my life and my career and, and, and a lot of people's lives and careers around me would have been very different. And so how do you create on-ramps for people like me from five, six years ago where we had a niche expertise, we knew we were doing kind of in that area, certainly didn't have access to capital, didn't have the relationships to get access to the type of resources that we needed. And hopefully over time, it doesn't take some sort of random stroke of luck to coincide to get somebody like me up and out of what we we're doing. So I think those are things over time that we want to build on. And look, I mean, permanent equity is my primary focus. It's my job. I love it. As we have these things, I mean, finding people who are passionate about them too and being able to help get them off the ground and then really let them lead it is the model that both Patrick and I, who I work on, you know, Patrick and I work on most stuff together these days. It's kind of our model is he's got his day job. I've got my day job. And for fun, we try to get these things off the ground and have them come to fruition. We'll move into closing questions. What college class would you want to teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? I feel like I'm not very qualified to teach on hardly anything. I mean, one of the things that I think probably have an expertise in that's pretty difficult that I think would be it's a valuable skill set is deal making. So the art of understanding two positions or more, two or three or four positions, having all the stakeholders around the table and understanding sort of what do they want? What are they able to get done? And where are the pain and pressure points? And then trying to craft a deal that works for everyone for the long term. And that's something that I just love. I mean, you talk about creating value when you can take people who Anytime somebody does a transaction, it's good for them and good for the other party, right? And if you were giving somebody a check, it's because we value that asset more highly than the cash that we're giving them, and they value the cash more highly than the asset they're selling to us. If you think about it, you know, in terms of all the stakeholders, whether it's employees, leadership teams, communities, certainly the vendors and the customers, how do you think through a lens that you look around and can see everyone's interests and then over time, craft something that works for everyone for the long term. It's, it's, I think that's a pretty valuable skill set. What would be your textbook or resource of choice working through that class? I don't have one. I mean, it'd be some combination of a bunch of different articles on psychology and negotiation, but I've never seen a book that's written on that topic. Gotcha. If there are books out there and somebody listens to this, please, for God's sakes, tell me. I would love it. <laughs> we'll see if we can get somebody. Yeah. What strongly held belief did you used to hold that you've changed your mind on? I mean, the dominant one has to be that, I mean, I used to be an atheist, a pretty hardcore atheist. And over time, God just pulled me in, wouldn't let go. And I became a follower of Jesus probably, let's see, seven years ago. Transformed my life. It's unbelievable the difference that I feel night and day now versus before. And just so grateful. So, Is there any particular moment that changed your belief or... Was it a series of moments or maybe one year in particular had a lot of change in your life that forced you to reconsider your position? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say in my late 20s, from the outside looking in, I mean, I had, I certainly was on a trajectory that I think looked pretty good. I mean, I had a beautiful wife who loved me, uh, business success, had friends and healthy family and had my health. And I would wake up every day and just be in this sort of existential dread. I just remember thinking to myself, like, this is it. Like, this is the thing that for the rest of my life, I'm just going to keep trying to earn and gain and eat and drink and be merry. And that's it. It seemed very hollow to me. And so about that same time, I started meeting people who just lived differently, just thought differently, lived differently than I did. I had no idea they were Christians. I was very condescending towards Christians at the time and uh, met these people who just loved and lived freely. And they seemed to just really enjoy their lives and were just created happiness wherever they went. I mean, certainly not perfectly, but they lived very differently than I did and very differently than my friends and thought differently. And so over time, I started getting to know them and I was kind of, you know, like, hey, what, what are you guys on? What's the, what's the thing? And almost reluctantly, they would, they, yeah, I would say reluctantly, they weren't quick to say, but eventually they would say, well, it's, you know, the love of God. I've been shown the graciousness and I was like, okay, well, that's ridiculous. So what else is it? Because you clearly must be on something else because that can't be it. And I mean, just really over time got to know them. And I thought that religion was for the weak and the stupid. And honestly, I think I didn't realize how weak and stupid I was at the time. And just understanding really the difference between what following Jesus is really like versus what the movies made it out to be is what I would call it. And over time, just started learning more and more and growing in faith. And it's been wonderful. Yeah. In your interactions with religious folks or of any religion as you went through this journey, what do you think the most humbling experience or interaction was? Well, the most humbling interactions, I mean, it was constantly being wrong about my positions on darn near everything. I thought I was smart and well-read and well-educated. And I would say that just really things that were just incorrect and they would kindly and gently correct me on those things. And so it was a lot of just misunderstandings, misperceptions that I had about who God was and what it meant to follow Jesus and what we were trying to do. I mean, I, the biggest one is just what was the gospel? I kept hearing, all, you know, what is the gospel, the good news? And I always thought the good news was that if you did these things that God called you to do, then God would give you health and wealth and happiness and prosperity and all these things. And they were trying to earn it. And I just remember one day when a buddy of mine said, God, Brent, that is the opposite. That is not it. The gospel, the good news is that you get to receive by faith alone all these gifts. It's freely given. And once you're of faith, like there's nothing you can do to get, you know, go outside of God's love and nothing you can do to earn it. And so you're not doing good works to try to earn God's favor. You're doing good works because of the things God's given you and that you're doing them out of love, not out of trying to earn. And so that was a big lightning bolt in my life. And it's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. And it takes a long time. And oftentimes I still forget it to today. And I try to get up and earn my salvation almost every day and have to remember that it's already it's finished. It's already, but not yet. So what's the best business you've ever seen? I mean, it's hard to beat software. Uh, let's be honest. I mean, in terms of business models, if you have an unlimited supply. You build it once, you sell it a million times. Oftentimes it's recurring revenue. I mean, software is an incredible business. I think that organizations like Constellation Software figured that out a long time ago and have built really massive businesses based on that. I think there's a lot of people who have caught on and figured that out. And so, I mean, look, if you're going to go big, I think software is a pretty good place to go big in. If you're an acquirer, I think it's a pretty brutally difficult place to uh, find value in it, to be completely honest. I mean, I think it's pretty picked over. There are still, I think, pockets. I think there's really smart people out there doing it. But yeah, in terms of, you know, if you want to think about the best in terms of 
quality of business. I mean, I think that would have to be it in terms of probabilistically, if you were starting from, from zero and said, you know, I just want to do well financially being a plumber and running a plumbing company. I mean, the economics are enduring and it's pretty straightforward how you do it. And there seems to be a pretty low bar for competition and that's also a pretty good business model. So I don't know. I mean, again, I'm attracted to things that are sort of high probability, maybe lower overall return that you're going to be able to consistently generate above average rate to return on. So yeah, I'm a big fan of plumbers. I've had several in the podcast, so I'm definitely with you there. Have you thought about maybe instead of acquiring a software company, have you thought about building one? Well, deal team software. So I mean, we've been actively building for about 18 months now. And I mean, I would say it's hard in different ways. Certainly, I haven't been doing the primary work on it, but it's been a real education in learning how software gets built and it's been fun. That's awesome. We'll close here, but thank you so much, Brent, for coming on the podcast. Listening to you on Invest Like the Best was a huge moment for me to identify with the micro PE and search fund world and realize that it existed. So I credit you in large part to think like an owner's existence. So thank you for doing that and thank you for sharing with us today. I appreciate it, Alex. I encourage you to keep up the great work. And it's a wonderful service you're doing to the micro PE small business world out there. So keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Oh.